you can't be neutral. <laughs> yeah, you can't be uh, neutral on a moving train uh, because, and this is what I meant to say, I always have to explain what I mean to say, because obviously the first time I say it, it's not clear. Sometimes even my explanations are not clear for what I meant to say. But what I meant to say was that um, the world is already going in certain directions. The world is already moving. Uh, the things are happening, wars are taking place, kids are going hungry. And in a world like this, already moving in certain directions to be, quote, neutral, that is not to take a stand, you know, is to collaborate with whatever is happening. The word, I didn't want to be a collaborator uh, with the, the way things were. Welcome, fellow plebs. My name is Sean, and this is Tribunus Plebis. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Tribunus Plebis podcast. Um, the first thing I'd like to do today is to take a second to thank all of you. Tribunus Plebis is averaging around 40 listens per episode, and since I have only like 10 or 12 friends and family, this is amazing and humbling to me. And a special thank you to those folks who have rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes. That is really awesome, and the reviews were awesome to read. Really, from uh, you know the bottom of my heart, thank you very much. That people keep listening is really blowing my mind, and I just wanted to make sure I sa- that I said thank you to everybody for all of the support. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, for this episode... I wanted to take a little time and tell everyone just a little bit about me and how and why I come to the political and social positions that I do. I am hopeful that this exercise will help anyone listening to understand where I come from a little bit um, with my views, uh, my podcast, my writings, and just general statements and arguments that I make. Um, So a lot of people who have read my blog posts or listened to any of these podcasts or just talked to me about social, political, and economic issues, they have sometimes labeled me as like crazy, radical, or sometimes even stupid or utopian. And, you know, I usually I take no offense to any of these things. It's fine. Um, I am not sure that I could argue for my own sanity or be happy with just being, you know, average and milk toast. Um, you know, I never consider myself to be overly smart or really content with wanting only that which seems likely. As an aside here, I find it funny that utopian seems to a lot of people to be like the insult that is greater than stupid. Like they'd rather be stupid than imagine a better world. And, you know, that, I don't know, that just blows my mind that, you know, I don't know. It it just messes with my head. It just messes with my head that, you know, people just just refuse to think that things could be better. You know, they'd rather just say, "Oh, you're a utopian thinker." You're and and that's to them that's worse than just being stupid. Stupid and unimaginative is better than wanting better. But anyway, anyway, sorry about that sidetrack. Um basically, I just want to tell you how 
kind of how I arrived at my quote unquote politics and what all of these ideas and concepts that we tend to view as politics mean to me both personally and on broader levels. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about, you know, how I grew up. Um, not a lot. I'm not, I'm not sure how much of a difference that it really makes, but I grew up in a small city. Like when I was young, it was just sort of a, uh, like a failing mill town. Um, my parents got divorced when I was very young. Uh, I lived with my mother, spent the weekends with my father who was, you know, both of my parents were always there, very engaged. There was no major drama here that I knew about as a child. We were not a wealthy family, but we weren't really poor either. You know, we lived in a, we had a nice house in a nice safe neighborhood and we went to a good school system. But uh, we didn't have a lot of extras either. You know, we were just working class, I guess, lower working class. Neither house, my mother's or my father's, was particularly political that I can recall. Eventually, both of my parents remarried and it pretty much stayed the same. Uh, Maybe politics got spoken about if there was a big story or a presidential election was approaching, but not a lot of cursing at the TV or rooting for a particular political team. Personally, when I was a teenager, I was more of a nihilist than anything else. Nihilist, nihilist, nihilist. I'm going to go nihilist. I didn't really care. I was the same stupid kid everybody else was. I wasn't paying attention to congressional legislation. And, you know, the few times any of that overtly political stuff entered into my world, I basically just dismissed it. Because I was a kid. I hadn't formed my own identity yet. I hadn't developed a sense of morals and ethics. Hell, I barely understood what those terms meant, if I'm being honest. And I am glad I didn't have the political views back then. I am so happy that I was able to dodge that bullet and actually work on myself for all of those years, rather than spending them all reinforcing the moronic view that I held when I was 14. I'm glad, for example, that I didn't register to vote at 18 and pick a party. I'd have picked one or the other, and that choice would have probably led me down a path of reinforcing that choice at every turn, and it may have turned me into one of those male brain dorks who obsesses over Wolf Blitzer's idiotic opinions. I mean, can you imagine how sad your life would be if you were writing slanted political essays for your high school newspaper, and then you were still doing the exact same thing, with the exact same politics, with the exact same sorts of arguments and beliefs that you had as a teenager when you were almost 40? Can you imagine that, Ben Shapiro? Yeah, you can. And the point here is that teenagers are universally moronic. I was a moronic teenager. All of my friends were moronic teenagers. I had no idea who I was at 15. I didn't have the life experience needed to actually form a true moral and ethical foundation. And the only people at that age who maybe did have some sort of foundation, as raw and unauthentic as it would have been, were people who were explicitly told and taught what that foundation was, and it was almost certainly based on religion. As I left high school, I was steadily and increasingly influenced by Buddhism, Taoism, and uh, related thought. Various random books and recordings taught me a lot of the basic Buddhist tenets, And eventually, as the internet became more prevalent and and accessible, it was easier to connect with, you know, Buddhist and other similar thinkers. Ram Das, Krishna Das, Surya Das, really all of the Dases. 
than other Americans who traveled throughout India and Asia in the 1960s and 70s. People like Sharon Salzberg, Joseph Goldstein, and perhaps most directly influential on me on a personal level, Jack Cornfield. Now, I, I won't bore you with you know all of the specifics, but reading these people's books, listening to them speak, understanding how much of the foundational principles on which Buddhism, Taoism, and Hinduism exists, and applying their teachings to my personal life helped form the moral and ethical bedrock on which I live my life. And I'm not saying that to pretend that I have some sort of morally and ethically perfect throne from which I sit, faultless and unerring, and judge all others, nor is it to say that I have it all figured out and am therefore unchangeable. And I do not claim any moral superiority here. I tell you this because I want you to understand that I do not have politics. I have a moral and ethical belief system which informs my response when a political question arises. And I really believe that this distinction is incredibly important to think about. And in the end, I think it is important that we all approach politics in this manner, morals and ethics first. My political ideals with politics being, you know, I don't know, loosely defined as like how we work together to solve issues and come together to outline and allocate power are based upon that moral and ethical foundation. And this, I believe, is the correct way for this to work. If I'm presented with a new, unique problem, and I'm asked to suggest a political solution, the first thing I do is check in with those morals and ethics. And I apologize right now, but you will be hearing those words, morals and ethics, quite a lot in this episode. So I check in and I see where those baseline principles suggest I need to go. From there, I can think about a potential solution. And there is another way to do this, of course. And I see it happen all too frequently. The other way is to allow our so-called politics to inform our moral and ethical beliefs and change them. Now, this can absolutely happen in good faith. We can be presented with new information and have it completely alter some sort of moral guideline. And I will toss out a personally uncomfortable example here. It's not perfect, but it may serve as an illustration. The R word. You know what it is. Don't make me say it. Well, when I was young... This is the word people used to describe those with special needs. Teachers, counselors, everybody used it. At some point, this changed, and I didn't. Maybe my whole town didn't, or just the people I hung around with, I don't know. But the memo never really fully reached my teenage brain. And I remember when it changed very clearly. I was watching TV, and a young man, roughly my age, with Down syndrome was on. And they talked about the R word. And he expressed how much it hurt when people called him that. And when he was talking about it, he just had tears in his eyes. And, it, and it, you could really see how much it bothered him. And then his parents came on and they talked about how much it hurt for both them and their son to hear morons like me toss that word around so flippantly. And I pretty much stopped using it that day. I wish I could say I never, ever uttered that word again, but that would be a lie. I did. I did, however, very quickly weed it out of my lexicon for the most part, and I quickly began to avoid it at all costs. I got new information, which was delivered in a particularly heartfelt way, and a new moral guideline was created in my foundation. Or maybe an old guideline just shifted or something, I don't know, I'm terrible at metaphors, but I think you can catch my drift here. We can get new information and apply it to our foundational beliefs because those beliefs are not concrete. They should always be firm, but flexible, and able to be modified when necessary. 
An example I always think about in our current times is the idea of family separation at our southern border and locking children in cages there. I know a lot of people who, if I had to ask them whether or not they thought it would be okay to separate families and lock children in cages and concentration camps on our borders before Trump hit the scene, they would have said no, it would not be okay. But then Trump did enter the scene, and these people latched on to a lot of things he said. And let's give the benefit of the doubt here and say that they latched on to like the non-racist issues. Let's say they thought he was right about NAFTA, about his economic populism, and they believed his promises to help the middle class and get everybody affordable health care, okay? Let's give them the best possible benefit of the doubt. So they latch on to these issues, and they want Trump to win. And he does. And now families are being torn apart and children are being separated and locked in cages in border area concentration camps. And now they support the very thing that they very likely would have rejected before the election. And I have talked to a lot of people about this. Not hundreds, but probably dozens. And I see it in their eyes. I swear I do. They know this is wrong. Even the ones with the most bravado about it. I have sat across the table from somebody who said, I don't care. They broke the law. I don't care. They can die on the way back to wherever they came from. I heard those words and I looked into his eyes and he didn't look back. He couldn't. He knew. I know he knew that what he was saying is morally reprehensible and that he did not really in his heart believe those words. He was just a Trump guy. He had to say something like that. Because to admit that Trump is wrong would be to admit that he was wrong. And he was too tied into that identity to admit that he was wrong. I am 100% certain that that's exactly what was going on. I do not believe that he actually wanted those people to die. And I do not believe that he actually thought that they should be torn apart as families to be locked in cages and camps on our border. He let politics inform his morals and ethics. And this is the deep dark, disgusting hole that we will allow ourselves to be driven into if we allow politics to corrupt our morals. On another level, a lot of this stuff is driven by a desire to just not be wrong. We can see this when Trump says racist things. Some Trump supporters will jump in and say, yeah, show me the racist things he has said. And so you list out like 20 different quotes and the Trump supporter goes down each quote and parses and dissects each one. The Trump supporter says that Trump isn't, he isn't a great speaker, so forgive the wording. And he argues that if you take the accepted definition in 1928 of the third word and move the comma over there and assume he was talking about different things, then no, none of these are racist remarks if you view them exactly how I, a Trump supporter, does. And listen, there is some truth to this line of reasoning. If we don't like somebody, we tend to use the worst possible interpretation of what they said, especially in the media. And if we like somebody, we do the opposite. But the thing is, if you find yourself defending a quote once or twice a year that could or could not be interpreted as racist, I think you have a point. Or you could have a point. Once in a while, we can forgive somebody or understand how they just garbled up their words, or chose a bad metaphor, or any of a dozen other explanations. However, when we find ourselves constantly trying to twist direct quotes to make them sound not racist, then maybe we need to step back from the situation, look at the sheer amount of questionable quotes and dog whistles we are dealing with, and admit that something isn't quite right here. We need to step back, 
stop focusing on the trees and examine the forest. The context here is the damning part, not individual quotes. And the point of all that is just to say, we have to be willing to acknowledge both what is true and to also maintain our own moral and ethical character. For instance, I want Trump out of office, but I can still say that Biden is a garbage politician and I am not really happy that he is the nominee to go against Trump. Shit, I don't want Biden anywhere near the White House or D.C. or my wife or sister or any woman under the age of consent or without pepper spray. See how easy that is to say? My identity is not shattered. My world has not ended. And no, this isn't about some milquetoast crap like, you know, I like this politician's economic views. I just wish he was more vocal about bipartisan issues. This is more like, I like how this guy feels about free trade, so I will overlook the systemic destruction of not just families at the border, but also our democracy itself and the direct attacks on minorities and the most vulnerable. Do you see the difference there? Do you see how climbing on board a cult of personality is leading to the destruction of your moral core? Every time we bend our morality to our political ideology, we lose. We lose our honest righteousness, but more importantly, we lose a little bit of our humanity. Disturbingly, there is increasing evidence that political ideology is shaping our morals and not the other way around. Doubly disturbing is the reality that political ideology is more firm, harder to alter, and is easier to use to self-define ourselves and find a tribe to belong to than our base morality is. And of course, getting into a tribe or a thought bubble tends to push us to the extremes as we feed off of each other and seek validation from the in-group. If you think about it, political parties and ideologies encourage us to make quick decisions on topics. The party supports this policy. Do you, Mr. Lifelong Party Guy? The conservative radio voice supports it. Do you, Mr. Conservative Listener? The liberal daytime talk show host supports this policy. Do you, Mrs. Liberal Lady? We exist in our tribes, or at least our political spheres. And when a new topic comes up, we tend to make a choice that echoes within that sphere. And our friends applaud our choices. Our social media feeds erupt into applause. Oh, what a rush! It is only later, well after we make these decisions, that we justify them. And to make the justification, we bend our morals to serve our needs. Yes, politics controls our morals in just that way. We validate our political choices with post hoc motivated reasoning. We no longer identify as individual human beings. We identify as conservatives or liberals or capitalists or socialists and on and on. And this is incredibly degrading to society, I think. In fact, I suppose that maybe we keep two tallies going in our lives if we think about politics. One tally contains the morals that define our everyday lives. Was I kind to people today? Did I help that woman who was struggling to lift the box into her trunk? Did I call my mother? Did I tell my family I love them? And so on. And sorry, Mom, I will call you. On the other tally is the political score. The entirety of that scoreboard reads thus, did we win? And that's it. Did we win? Not even did I win, but did we win? And think about how sad that is. And think about how easy it is to do, to separate these two things. Think about how easy it is when somebody asks us if we are good, moral, 
ethical people to only reference that first tally board, the personal one. We don't even acknowledge the political one, the one where winning is all that matters, the one where our votes directly harm thousands or even millions of people. Whenever I consider that last little thought experiment, I am struck with how we are a very sick people in a lot of ways. Our morality and ethics have to be our primary drivers behind our political stances. And when I say that, I am again not claiming moral superiority. Different people can have different morals. Though I think that if we were to be honest and speaking in a vacuum bereft of politics, then the vast, vast majority of, do- of adult human beings would share so many moral and ethical similarities that we would surprise ourselves if we could just stop for a second and talk to each other. And it is due, I think, to this broad similarity of moral and ethical beliefs that we can see how debilitating and destructive divisive politics really is to our society. Almost all of us do not want to cause harm to another person. So why do some of us support policies which cause harm to other people? And I don't mean that in a weird, ambiguous way either. I mean that some of us would say that we never want to harm another person, but then we are okay with pulling apart families and locking children in cages and spraying them with chemicals that are making them sick. They are basically claiming to be against harming other people, but also pro-torture because, well, they deserve it, they say. They broke a law. Yesterday, they were appalled by such treatment. Today, the president says he likes it, so now they like it. Is morality driving their politics or is politics changing their morality? And again, I don't view much of this as ambiguous. Concentration camps, good or bad? Bad? Okay. What about when the president who you support tells you that they are necessary? Still bad? No? Now you support them? Then you're part of the problem here. Now, I have been shitting on the conservative side of things here, but this can happen on any side of the two-party bullshit we live in. A lot of people love Obama. They look back on his presidency like it was like the shining achievement of all that the world could ever possibly achieve. Now, if we could ask these people, before Obama was known, if the government should be keeping assassination target lists, particularly with American names on it, and then extrajudicially assassinating American citizens, generally, I think they would have been appalled by this. The idea that the government and the president would keep a list of assassination targets and personally oversee such assassinations should be appalling. But that's exactly what Obama did. Ask them if it would be okay to murder hundreds of people to possibly, maybe, kill one target. Ask them if it would be okay to repeatedly bomb weddings, private homes, and funerals full of women and children, innocent people, and to kill them, all to kill one person. Ask them if all of that would be okay, even if they missed the target. And there are people who were missed multiple times. The vast majority of these people, I think, would be appalled by the very idea of these actions. Now you tell them that Obama did that, and you can just marvel at the dissonance. Just fucking marvel at it. It is as humorous as it is sad in a lot of ways. Or even the new Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden. 
find a Facebook or Twitter post with a clip of Biden talking talking about improving policing and his idea to give police even more money if he is elected. Find one and then mention in the comments that the current state of racist and abusive policing is tied directly to the crime bill he claims to have written and was the primary supporter of when he fought hard to get it passed in Congress and the Senate. Do that and watch how quickly politics subdues morality and ethics, let alone actual honesty. And when I said way back at the beginning that I do not have personal politics, I mean it. I do not identify as a Democrat or Republican or a conservative or liberal or or any of those labels. I am not an ist and subscribe to no isms. Yes, if I am voting, I am almost certainly voting for a Democrat or independent, especially if it is a national election. But it's not because of the party letter next to their name. It is because they will almost certainly be closer to what I want in this world than their Republican counterpart. This disparity says nothing about me or you. The divide says something about this fucked up two-party electoral system, which those same two parties maintain corruptly. Hey, if you have a politician out there running for president or Senate whose ideas align closely to my own, and I actually believe them, I will 100% vote for that person if they have an R next to their name over a Democrat who has ideas I oppose. Unfortunately, because of the sad, sick state of our country, this is basically impossible to see happen above the local level. I do not care not one itty-bitty little bit what party some politician is flagging for. Just have sane moral ideas and you'll get my vote. That we choose party over policies is a countrywide cultural failing. That we choose tribe over policies is a social failing. If we allow politics, and I'm using the word politics right now in its most derogatory sense, to override what we know is right, to override our morals, then that is an ethical disaster. So, when a novel issue arises, how do we approach it? Right now, what most of the people who report on these things, the media, the talking heads, the opinion journalists in network news or newspapers, and politicians and party operatives, they begin framing the new issue. They don't just report on it. They frame it. They, in essence, explain to you how you should think about it. You turn on Fox News and you are harangued with conservative viewpoints. The president is correct to do this, even if it might be cruel. They deserve it, they tell us. You click on MSNBC and it sounds more like, the president is wrong to do this. Nobody should be treated this way, even though they deserve it, because MSNBC sucks too. And as a society, we tend to watch one or the other and get indoctrinated into that groupthink. How should we think about a novel issue? We should run it through our moral and ethical filters. Do those filters tell me what the president did is good or bad? Good? Okay, then it was good. Next step is to wonder whether it can be improved upon or altered or whatever, but that's a separate issue. Was what the president did bad, according to those same filters? Yes? Then shout it from the fucking rooftops. Do everything possible to make it stop. These are not hard things to work out. So we have to have these moral and ethical guide rails, at least I do, to be able to fully deal with politics. With no basic foundational principles, we have no anchor. And if we have no anchor, then we are simply adrift and we are taken by whatever currents, winds, and storms arise. And then we are cast upon the jagged rocks of the authoritarian, 
anti-human, psychopathic shores of so much bullshit that we deal with right now. If politics really is about how we work together to solve issues, come together and allocate power, then morals and ethics simply have to be part of politics. It is literally impossible to pull the two apart. And to drive down on this idea even more and turn our eyes to ethics, and if we consider that ethics is, again, to to define something a little loosely, the basic premise of whether an action or choice is right or wrong, and even down to how we more broadly live our lives and deal with each other, then ethics too is inherent in our form of politics. And that is because every time we create a new political policy, the effects of that policy become law and guide our lives. Ethics allows us to examine those results. Are they good or bad? And we can use our ethical base to predict what may happen before we make these votes. Everybody is normally fine with using morals and ethics to guide our everyday and and interpersonal choices, but they balk at bringing them into politics for some reason. In fact, you will often hear talking heads, in particular those of the conservative variety, argue that facts don't care about your feelings or something similar as they worship logic and reason. But if there is one thing we have learned over time, it's that we can't separate logic and reason from feelings. Feelings are always part of our thought processes. And I think that what these facts over feelings chuds are doing is trying to dismiss your morals and ethics. They want a very simplistic view on life because it makes their almost comically simple black and white thinking seem profound and undeniable. It is truly a terrible world if we decide to allow these talking heads to control our ability to fully see the world as it is and to allow them to only show us the oversimplified, partially true, this or that version of the so-called reality that they prance around in. What's even worse is when you spend years watching some daily show with with a Rachel Maddow or Janine Pirro or Tucker Carlson, and you realize that they either do not fully understand what they are talking about or that they do fully understand it and they are purposefully withholding information from you or they're flat out lying to you. We could debate which of these scenarios is the more dangerous or assholish, the withholding or the lying, but either way is incredibly destructive to any semblance of democratic ideals. Now, obviously, as I think I mentioned before, we all don't share identical views. This dividing of us into teams only exasperates those divides. Well, maybe it doesn't actually exasperate those divides. Perhaps a better way to say this is that they use those tiny divides, usually cultural ones as wedges, to be driven in and split us into teams. Teams which they can then set against each other to prevent us from working together to fight against the oligarchs and career politicians. Even in the best case scenarios, where all sides are acting in good faith, we have the problem of perspective. A Pennsylvania steelworker and a clerical worker in Manhattan certainly have differing views of the world. But if both act in good faith, They could sit down and talk and shake hands and largely agree on damn near everything because they have similar basic morals and ethics. But now insert those two people into our current political and social climate and what happens? One is a Trump person and the other is a Biden person and they hate each other before they even meet because they've been told to. They've been fucking taught to by Trump, by the Democrats, by the media, by their friends, by their media thought bubbles. We've been purposefully driven like cattle to hate the other side, 
to automatically reject anything that they do. Well, I'm not going to hate my fellow man for disagreeing with me. Not unless that disagreement is leading to the harming of other people. And I do recognize that there is real harm going on from those who disagree with me, but I also realize that the people supposedly on my side are doing harm as well. My morals and ethics will not allow me to set that aside like it means nothing. The first thing we need to do is realize that both sides of these national arguments have valid points. I know that's crazy to consider when you're on one side, but they do. Both sides have valid points. They are driven by similar morals after all. Then we need to realize that the broad goal is usually similar, if not exact. Let's go super broad and say making the world better is the goal. Who the hell doesn't want that to happen, right? Well, there are different ways to do that. And while my morals tend to push me towards certain solutions, that doesn't mean I will always be right. And just because conservatives tend towards other solutions does not mean that they are always wrong. But right now, we can't even see that both sides have valid concerns and viewpoints. This is incredibly dangerous. We have to be willing and able to not only see and give lip service to, but to truly understand the value and worth of the opposing side's ideas. Too often, you hear elitist jackass talking heads say something like, Trump voters are only racists. They dismiss that these people felt real economic, social, and emotional pain under previous administrations, both Democrat and Republican. They ignore that these 50-year-old voters watched their parents' livelihoods diminish and then saw their own follow that same downward trajectory. They ignore that these are real people with real problems. It doesn't mean I support Trump or agree with voting for him, but these people had valid concerns. And we should be able to see the strength and moral weight of the ideas and concerns of all sides in these battles. The urge we have in politics is to see what the quote-unquote other side says or wants and to reflexively declare that we support whatever the polar opposite of that position is. Republicans like pineapple on pizza? Well then, Democrats want it banned. Liberals prefer synthetic motor oil? Well, get the oil rigs running because Republicans are all in on natural. Because that other group is bad and my group is good. I mean, in the end, we shouldn't elect a person like Trump ever. There are better ways, but that's another story for another day. And this divide we are experiencing is particularly evil because it is self-sustaining. The deep distrust that the media sowed over decades for ratings and money? Well, that divide has turned into a gulf, and that gulf has metastasized into a black hole with its own mass and gravity. Every action of one side is spun by the media, and it adds to the gravity well, and it sucks in all the goodwill we have, and it all just goes away. Every choice, action, and even word becomes a motive for that other side to distrust this side, and every action from this side is an automatic motive for that side to distrust it. I have no clear and obvious solutions to this problem other than imploring people to stop listening to the media and to stop being fans of politicians. And that last one, the fan thing, that really fucking bugs me. What kind of moron do we have to be to fly Biden flags and write all caps MAGA messages to every news story we see on Facebook? Like, I get that we have elections and we want to let people know who we support, but it has to stop there. We can prefer one guy or the other without selling our souls to either of these half-brain-dead, drooling, corporate, ball-washing, fool politicians. 
please understand a few things. These people are not your fucking friends. They are not working for your interests. They are not draining the swamp and they are not bringing fundamental change. What they are doing is they are destroying your lives. Please knock it off. These aren't baseball teams. This isn't sports. These idiots affect our lives for fuck's sake. To wrap this up, I guess that in the end, all we have is our own personal morals and ethics and principles. I pray that we have the intelligence to rely on them as we move forward and not simply idol worship as we follow our evil politicians and our social media tribes which worship them into the abyss. Dig your heels in, man. Don't get dragged along cheering your own demise. Open your eyes, look into your heart, listen to it, fight the currents, break your chains. 